A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky Tonight we are in the book of Hebrews, and so if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip there. And um, for those of you who are new, my name is Ricky, I'm the pastor here, and welcome to those of you who are new, welcome to those of you who are online. And on Wednesday nights, what we have been doing is we have been covering an entire book of the Bible for each of our Wednesday nights, so that we can, con- we can see the continuity of God's message from Genesis to Revelation. And so um, before we get in, while you guys are flipping there, oh, that's way better. Um, I think the only announcement we have um, this week is that youth is this Friday, and this is their beach day. And so if any of you have any teens that want to go, I know Matt and Sharon would really appreciate it if you guys could go online and get them registered so they know how to plan for food and for travel. And so that is for 6th through 12th grade, but from what I understand, there are a few kids a little older. I'll say kids, because who's not a kid at the beach? And um, if you guys are interested in going, just let us know so that we can make plans. And with that, why don't we pray before we get into the Word this evening? And so, Lord, we present ourselves before you, God, as we dive into your Word tonight. Lord, I'm thankful for this opportunity to worship, Lord, with our one of our sisters for a final time, God, and Lord, just to see how you have, Lord, ministered to her and to our team and seen this group grow and be able to lead our church in worship. Father, you have been tremendously faithful there. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be faithful now as we get into your word that you would speak to us, Father. Lord, you teach us to abide more closely to Christ and that, Lord, we might even walk, walk out resembling your son a little bit more than we did when we came in here this evening, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So, <clears throat> we are picking up in the book of Hebrews today, and <clears throat> as always, the Lord has been faithful to kind of create some continuity between our messages, and this past Sunday, we covered Matthew chapter 10, um, verses 5 through 7. And in that three verses, we see Jesus send the 12 disciples, who he calls apostles at that time, to Israel specifically. And he, and he even um, commands them not to go into the land of the Gentiles, specifically so that the people of Israel would see the continuity of God's heart for them, that there are still God's chosen people, that even in this new covenant, God desires the people of Israel like he always has. And now tonight we get into the book of Hebrews, and <clears throat> this letter, uh, some would actually call it a sermon rather than a letter, is written to the Jewish Christian and possibly to those who would even consider converting from Judaism to Christianity. And so to give you guys a little bit of background on this letter is that the author is unknown. We've just finished getting through the Pauline epistles and letters, and so there are some who would attribute this to Paul as we've been going through all of his letters so far. 
But in this letter, there are none of the markers that would indicate that this is Paul, as the greeting is completely missing. The closing that Paul always has in his letters isn't there. And so some of the other ones that we might see are Barnabas and Apollos, I believe. I read James is one that they would consider. Luke is one who is considered to have written the book of Hebrews. But really, at the end of the day, we don't know who wrote this. And even through the letter that we read, we don't see that it is specifically written to the Hebrews. However, it is titled as such because as you read through, whoever it was that this person was writing to, they were assuming that they had a thorough knowledge of the first five books of the Old Testament. And so it's safe to assume that according to the region and according to the time that this would have had to have been the Hebrew believer because as you read through the book of Hebrews, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to do so, to say it is riddled probably doesn't encompass it. The, the book of Hebrews is founded on these first five books of the Old Testament. Everything that this author ties back to is Old Testament prophecy, Old, Old Testament promises. Um, and to the founders of our faith back then as well. And so the Gentiles would not have been familiar with these texts. It would have been the Jews. And this person, whoever it was that was writing it, and actually like what Skip Heitzig said, <clears throat> as you read through this, um, actually let's look at verse 1 before I say this next comment. It says in Hebrews 1.1, Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That particular commentary would say that it really doesn't matter who penned the book. We see that God spoke through whatever individual this is to communicate the message of encouragement to us. And so God is speaking to the Hebrews. Again, we're, we're safe to assume the Hebrew Christians and those who are considering converting from Judaism to Christianity to let them see who Jesus is even within the Old Testament is that a lot of times, and we've spoken about this before, is that we wrongly assume Jesus is only existing within the New Testament, but Jesus exists from creation on and even before creation, and he points to the authority, and he points to the fact that Jesus is better than all of these things that you have elevated. I believe tonight's title that we're calling this is Jesus is Better. And so, the reason we titled that is as we go through Hebrews, and I'm not going to give an outline like we typically do at the beginning, we're just going to work through it, is all the way through Hebrews, whoever the author is, always brings up an example of something that the religion of Judaism elevates and says, Jesus is better than this thing. You believe that this is holy and righteous, but in comparison to that, Jesus is still more sufficient compared to that thing. And so he wants the reader to understand that Jesus is in fact better, and because he is better, he is sufficient to be your salvation. And so with that, if you're looking at verse 1 again, let's just read through a couple more verses here. If you're in verse 1, would you say amen? It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so here in these first four verses, while he starts to bring up angels, we see what this book is about. We need to understand that Jesus is superior to all things, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And he wraps it up in verse 4 here that even compared to the angels, he is more superior than they. Now, angels today might seem a strange thing to bring up in this particular context, but there was a group of there was a group within Judaism who were actually elevating angels to a point of worship at this time. And please forgive me for forgetting their name, but they would actually say Michael the archangel in some context had a superior calling than Christ did either, not Christ, but than others did at times. And so here, Hebrews is specifically addressing the issue that Jesus is more superior to the angels. And if you would look at with me at verse 5, he explains why that is the case. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And so here, he makes it very clear that while there are some who would be inclined to, to elevate the position of angels, he says Jesus is in fact better than they because Jesus never called, God never called the angels son. He never looked at them as they were the begotten one. He never looked at them and commanded that they be worshipped, but he even commanded the angels worship Jesus. In verse 7, he goes on to say, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his masters a flame of fire, but the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And he goes on to explain why Jesus is, in fact, better than the angels. And as we're looking at this, <clears throat> this specific tie and something to consider within chapter 1, and we see it go on in chapter 2, verse 3, as he's continuing to speak about angels here is he not only says we need to reconsider how highly we think of angels, but we need to consider what we think of the message that they would convey. He says, if we took so seriously the message that the angels delivered in the Old Testament of the Old Covenant, of the law, how much more should we take seriously the message of the new salvific covenant that Jesus brought himself? So simply saying is that you're taking really seriously this message that the angels brought and you're elevating it very high. But if the angels are below Christ, shouldn't we think the message that Jesus brought be even more important than what the angels said? Is he's encouraging them to not just cling on to the things that you're used to doing because remember, and just like many of the letters we read in the New Testament is the Christian church was under heavy persecution. 
And even more specifically, the Jews who were converting to Christianity were under a more severe persecution than some of the others. And that the ridicule that they would have had to deal with was fairly severe. And so as they're looking at these things, he is reminding them to not be inclined to go back to your old religious ways just because you're used to it. Don't go back to your old religious ways because your family is guilt tripping you into it. But consider more seriously what Jesus has to say about the matter. Is that there are a lot of things that they would be inclined to go back to because it was more familiar, because it was easier, because it was more simple in practice. It's just something that they had always done. But he's saying, remember, if Jesus is in fact who Jesus says he is, what Jesus says is more important and is more satisfying. Don't go back to the bondage of the law that held you captive, but walk in the freedom that the blood of Christ has provided you. And then as we move on, and remember, we're trying to make it through the whole book of Hebrews. We're not going to read everything. Flip with me over to chapter 3. Chapter 1 and 2, we see the author stating that Jesus is, in fact, more sufficient and better than the angels. Chapters 3 and 4, we see that Jesus is a better moderator. And right here in chapter 3, verse 1, if, you, if you're there, would you say amen? It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so for those of you who are taking note here, when they're speaking of the house, they're speaking of mankind as God has created mankind. And and Moses was a faithful minister to it. We see that Moses would act as a leader to the Jewish people. We see that he would be the one who by his hands the law would be delivered to them. The Jewish people, I might even say, were flirting with worshiping Moses, and they still struggle with this. One commentary I read and was referencing another commentary, but a famous Jewish author would even place Moses as the most important Jewish figure over Christ, and it's a very well-respected author. They respected Moses, and Moses is absolutely due respect, but Moses is not God. And he's reminding the reader here, he's reminding us that Jesus is even more superior than even Moses. Now, considering who Moses is, this is important. He was the lawgiver. He was the moderator. He spoke to God on behalf of the Jewish people. As we see in Exodus he would actually speak to God, as it says, as though he was speaking to a friend. Moses had an intimate and lovely relationship with the Lord. And as we look at the law, the commandments, it is literally called the law of Moses. This was a saint, if anybody could be called one, absolutely. 
However, he was just a servant in the house that God built. And here he says, while Moses was a, in fact, and I love that he doesn't retract or belittle the work of Moses. He says, Moses was just a faithful servant in the house that Jesus built. Moses is called a servant at best, but Jesus is in fact called son in the master's house. Don't elevate, don't be tempted to elevate Moses above Christ. Jesus is considered son. And then as we move on through these chapters in verse 4, more specifically 4.8, if you would track with me, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, goes on to speak about Joshua. And we're going to read, we'll read through the rest of the chapter here. So if you're in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, would you say amen again? It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, and this is, This is for the fact that Joshua was bringing the people to the promised land. It says, For Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. I'm going to go on to read a little bit more. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I'm going to pause right there before we move on. He speaks of Joshua. Somebody else who the Jewish people would have elevated as a great leader of the time, he's already reminded this, reminded us that Moses, while a great leader, is still insufficient compared to Christ. Then we have Joshua who led the people from Moses into the promised land. This was supposed to be a place of rest. Had the people of Israel actually abided to the law, they would have seen peace all of their days. They wouldn't have struggled. But this peace, this rest, was only temporary. As they moved into the promised land, they did see wonderful days, but those wonderful days would in fact fade as we sit here today. They are not in that place. And he's reminding them that while Joshua is an amazing leader and while he's a great man and while he led the people to a kind of rest, he did not lead them to their perfect and sufficient rest. Jesus, in fact, provides better rest. And so again, as a moderator goes, Jesus is a better moderator. As far as providing rest goes, Jesus provides better rest And then in 14, where we stopped, he began to speak about Jesus being a high priest, getting back to, or not back to, but even speaking as a mediator for people. And so in verse 15, it goes on to say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so here, 
the author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is, in fact, the greater high priest. And this particular section of verses is extremely meaty. We could probably teach on these few verses for several weeks at a time as we speak about who Melchizedek is. I'm going to try to break this down very quickly and simply here. Now, first, we speak about this verse all the time that Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Is that Jesus, as he didn't consider it robbery to be made like man, came to understand all of our suffering. So that as we would go to him as a priest, so that as we would go to him for guidance and assistance in a time of help, he would be able to understand our suffering. I think if one of the big notes that we could take tonight is that in our prayers, we're, we forget this oftentimes, there's this collision of realities when we're speaking about who Jesus is, is oftentimes we pray to him remembering that he is fully God, but forgetting that he is fully man. Sometimes we forget, or we pray to him realizing that he was fully man and forget he's fully God. When we pray to who Jesus is and we pray to him, we're praying to a God who is able to aid us in all of our needs, but also as he was man and suffered alongside with us, can understand our broken heart. I'm sure some of us have gone to others that we consider friends and consider leaders or consider parents, whoever it is that this may be. And I don't know how many of you have ever had the experience of trying to convey a type of suffering and to only see that the other person has no understanding of what it is that you're talking about. The author of Hebrews here is reminding us that when you pray to Christ, you're not communicating to somebody who doesn't understand what you're saying. Jesus understands what you're saying and he understands it intimately and he purposefully walked into that understanding so that he could lead you out of that season. Jesus is a superior priest because the priest in the Old Testament could only bring you to the Lord, but was insufficient themselves as they were riddled with sin themselves. He would have been seen for help, but then again could only bring you so far. He could only bring you to a certain point, and then if he was to make a sacrifice for you, that sacrifice was only a temporary covering for your sin because a sinner is the one who presented it. And Jesus in his perfection was able to cover our sin with the perfect sacrifices. He is perfect. He is in all ways a better high priest and he is in all ways a better mediator. There is not a physical priest that stands before us and the Lord. And this is something to remember as we look at the book of Hebrews, as we look at other religions that try to parade as Christianity as you go to at other churches or whatever it is that they might be, if they try to impose a man to stand between you and your communication from the Lord, you have to know that is unbiblical. Is your leaders in your church exist to be there for counsel and to be there for direction, but no man is a gatekeeper between you and God. Jesus died on the cross and that veil was torn from top to bottom so that you could boldly approach Christ in prayer. You don't need me in order to pray and you don't need me in order to hear from the Lord. I'm here to assist if you have a question whether you are hearing from the Lord or not. 
but I am no gatekeeper for the Holy Spirit, and neither is any other man. Amen? So he is the all-sufficient priest and mediator. And we're going to skip over chapters 5 and 6 as we see that these are applications for maturity. We're going to continue on this track for the kind of priest that Jesus is. And so if you guys would, flip with me over to chapter 7. And as Jesus is a more sufficient priest, we see chapter 7 explains more clearly why that is. And so I'm going to do a little bit more reading than we've done so far this evening. But if you're in chapter 7, verse 1, would you say amen? It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. For those of you who are taking notes, Salem means peace. So king of peace. Priest of the most high God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resemble the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. And though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical, Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest rises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, let's break that down, because that is a lot. So, Jesus being a better priest, the author of Hebrews then begins to help us understand why he is saying that. And he is reminding the Jewish readers, he's reminding us today that it is in fact that case as Jesus has come from the line of Melchizedek through the line of Judah. This is a superior priestly line. 
And as he's beginning to explain who Melchizedek, or he's reminding them the superiority of Melchizedek so that we would understand the superiority of Jesus. Now, when we're looking at men of faith who the Jewish people again would raise high, Abraham is absolutely one of them. Abraham is somebody that we look up to in the church. He is a great man of faith and as he should be. However, what we read here For those of you who were needing some explanation is that as great as Abraham was, Abraham was obligated to still give this king Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of everything from everything he owned. Is he is calling Abraham insufficient compared to who Melchizedek is. And then later on, as we see the law established and as we see the Levitical priesthood established, He would even note its insufficiency compared to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so what it means here when it says that the the house of Levi would tithe to Melchizedek, what he's saying is that as the line of Levites came from Abraham, they did not actually exist yet. Let's talk genealogies for a moment. None of those individuals have been born. However, they came from the loins of Abraham. Spiritually, you could say that the house of Levi tithed to Melchizedek is what the author here is arguing. And so Abraham and all of these that you considered to be most holy still had to tithe to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is one who Christ came from or is. That's a sermon for another day. It is safe to say who Jesus is, in fact, is, as he has no genealogy pre-Melchizedek, and he is still alive today. So Jesus is superior as he has always been alive. He has no genealogy pre-his existence. We see it when it comes to his being a man, but not being God. We see that those who they would have considered most holy and righteous, in fact, had to tithe to them as he existed then. Jesus is, in fact, the superior priest by the order of Melchizedek. And I love that the author of Hebrews, and this is why I always want to encourage you guys as you're reading your Bible, you have to understand the Old Testament in order to truly understand the New Testament is to avoid this inclination that some might say the Old Testament is irrelevant. No, the Old Testament is wholly important to understand what we're talking about here. If we didn't have the Old Testament texts, and be honest, we read through the book of Hebrews, I'd have no clue what this person was writing about. But as we look through this, he brings to them all of these reminders that Jesus has been the one you have been waiting for for forever. He's been the one that you have honored and those who you have honored, honored even more. That Jesus is in fact the Messiah that you have been waiting for. Brothers, as he is communicating to them, don't miss the fact that Jesus is in fact more sufficient than the things you are used to elevating. And then he moves on to chapter 8. As he says it so plainly in chapter 8, we see that Jesus provides a better ministry. I'm actually doing okay on time. All right, this is great. So, Jesus provides a better ministry. And so, normally I know on Wednesday nights I try to give you guys a couple key verses, but I'd say 
through the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 is arguably the key chapter in the book as he now shifts a little bit more specifically why Jesus is better rather than explaining how the others are less sufficient. And so verses 1 through 2, if you're looking at chapter 8, would you say amen? Now the point in what we are saying is this. So this is the turn in the book. Him saying, now that I've explained all of this, let's make this point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For that first covenant had been faultless, or for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so Jesus is providing a ministry. And the first thing he reminds them of eight, in chapter 8, as he's done previously, is you need to remember where Jesus is as he is seated at the right hand of God. All of these other priests that you have looked to, you can look around and you can see them standing amongst you. They're still offering sacrifices, but Jesus is in fact sitting victoriously on the right hand of God. And then he goes on to remind them the tabernacle that they would set up as God is communicating to Moses that it is a picture, it is a shadow of the things that are in heaven. He's acknowledging that these were great things, but brothers and sisters, don't forget that the tabernacle and the temple was just a copy image of the things that were in heaven. These things were not designed to be worshipped. They were supposed to be reminders of the future hope that was coming your way. And you guys have brought these things to a place that is unhealthy. Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of everything the tabernacle has been designed to remind you of. And here, he says, finally, in verse 7, this covenant that you cherish so much, if it had been sufficient in the first place, why in the world would we have been looking for another one to come at all? And for those of you who are newer here and maybe not tracking with us for very long, when we're talking about the old covenant and the new covenant, we're speaking about the promise that God established with the Ten Commandments, that if they would be faithful to those, then they would be okay. But what we've come to find out is that the old covenant was only successful in revealing to a man that they are in dire need of a Savior because there's no way that any man can perfectly fulfill the Ten Commandments. That we see in Scripture that if you have broken one, you have broken all of them, and thus you are still a failure. And Jesus, out of his great love for us, seeing that, came from heaven and lived a perfect life for us to fulfill what we could not. And that work that Jesus did is what this new covenant is. 
As you guys, in the Old Testament, he's reminding the Hebrew peoples that this thing that you're cherishing is the very thing that's killing you. This is the thing that is reminding you that you, in fact, need saving. You're considering yourself righteous by a standard that's telling you you are not righteous. And you need to rely on the one who is perfectly holy. The old, te- the old covenant was designed to control people's conduct. And as we've seen, whenever we try to control people's conduct, that's temporary at best. But the new covenant was able and designed to change a person's character and spirit. When we see a person who is wholly surrendered to the Lord, that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Lord changes their ability to abide according to the word in a way that they never could in their own flesh, you are a new creation, you are sanctified, you are made holy and given this new mind in Christ. And he goes on as we, I'm running out of time, I'm not moving as quickly as I was a moment ago. Chapter 9 and 10 explains that Jesus is a better tabernacle or temple and that he is a better sacrifice. And I want to encourage you guys to read those at home if you have time. But in summation, what he says here is, again, just explaining furthermore that the tabernacle was an image of what is in heaven, but he goes on more specifically that the priests that still reside and exist today they will always have to continue making a sacrifice because it's insufficient to cover your sins for eternity. But he's reminding them that Jesus, as he was perfect, as he is perfect, provides a more perfect sacrifice that does not need to keep being repeated over and over and over again. That the sacrifices required by the Old Testament standard While they did have moments of pause, they couldn't ever really stop because they weren't able to cover your sin's future either. But it says, we see that Jesus, as he died for us, covered our past, present, and future sins. That Jesus, even in the, in Gethsemane, not Gethsemane, but as he was praying before he, uh, man, I'm spacing, it's been a long day, guys. As he was praying for us before he bore the cross, he prayed for the saints in the future for their salvation. He even knew in his mind then that he knew what he was about to do is going to be sufficient for us who sit here today. I don't know how many of us have considered that as Jesus 2,000 years ago was so perfect and so sufficient that your sins are covered today. That he prayed for you. That he knew you. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He knew you back then. And I find that a comfort because it means he knew me and he knew that I was going to be an enemy of his and still died for me. You brothers and sisters, while you were still enemies, he died for you even then because of his great love for you. And then as we look at chapters 11 and thir- through 13, as we bring this to a close, for those of you who are taking notes, we see practical exhortation or practical thoughts as we consider that Jesus is better. 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 
Brothers and sisters, we are encouraged to live by faith. We are encouraged to put our faith and trust in Jesus in all things and to know that he is better. And I love how he does this. As you continue to read through Hebrews chapter 11, in the next verse is what it is commonly called the Hall of Fame of Faith. Is it continues to remind the Hebrew and us today of all of these individuals in the Old Testament who were verified by their faith in God. That they were considered righteous, not because of their works, but because they had to wholly trust in who God was. And this, I hadn't, to be honest, when I was studying this, I hadn't ever considered this. As you read through this Hall of Fame of Faith, all of these who placed their faith in God had to do so before the Old Testament covenant was ever established. We get this question all the time. It's like, all right, well, how, were people saved? How in the world were people saved before Jesus? Well, people were saved before Jesus because they placed their faith in God. As you read through this, all of these who had to place their faith Abel, Abraham, Sarah, Moses did not always have it. It was towards the end of his life that he even got to see it. David, Samuel, all of these had to place their faith in God. And God was the one who was sufficient to see them through. God was sufficient to save them then as he was sufficient and faithful to offer us and give us his one and only son. Faith is better than works. And he's encouraging the Hebrew reader. And again, this is my favorite part of the turn of this letter. Is like all of these things that you have elevated, this law, this covenant that you have placed up here, it didn't even save all of those people who had great faith before the law was established. You guys have missed the point. Is this is about keeping our eyes on the Father. This is about keeping our eyes on the Messiah who has come. The law wasn't supposed to save you. And then in chapter 12, as we've been reminded to have great faith in God, we're reminded of the endurance that must exist while we have faith. So chapter 12, verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 7. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by, gro- by so great a cloud of witnesses, I'm going to pause again. For those of you who are taking notes, the cloud of witnesses are these, in chapter 7, listed saints who have been identified by their faith. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
And then from that, I'm going to skip down to verse 12 for the sake of time. Verse 12 says, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Chapter 11, we're reminded that we're to live by faith. And then in chapter 12, we're reminded of the endurance necessary for us to live by faith. I don't know how many of you know this, but walking by faith is not easy. It is certainly one of the most difficult things to do. But here, we're not only encouraged, some of us might even consider this a harsh encouragement. First, he says, remember those who walked by faith first. They didn't do it easily, but they were counted faithful for doing it. It says, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. If your, struggle against, if, you, if your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. I have a note here. It says, no partition, participation awards are given in this particular text. We're called to finish our race of faith. We're called to endure we're called to rely on the Lord and to see things through. And there are many, many individuals who try and they start off on the right foot. But they quit. And it's not us they quit on. Let's, re- let's remember what's actually happening here as we're talking about who the church is and what the church is. There are many believers, and we see this caution here in a moment, that we strive for peace with everyone. When we see someone fall, stumble, or fail, We hold a grudge against them like they've failed us in some capacity. It's not that they have failed us. It's that they have forgotten to put their faith and trust in the Lord. We lack grace because we evaluate somebody's failure as though that they've hurt us. They haven't hurt you. You still have a relationship with the Lord. Abide closely with Him. As you grow weary, as you get tired, as you grow faint... Endure. He says, I want you to remember in summation, as I kind of summarize what he's saying here, is that you're considering your struggle, but I would encourage you more to consider Christ's struggle that he bore for you. In your battle against sin, have you struggled so much that you have shed blood for it? Because Jesus did. This is what this writer is communicating here. He's like, before you give up, before you put your hands down, and before you call it quits, consider that Jesus was shedding blood to successfully save you. That this is what it is to bear your cross, is to walk after Jesus as he suffered, and to be willing and to find joy in it. Jesus, who is a perfecter of our faith, did it for joy, bearing our cross. 
I want to remind you, this isn't, Jesus doesn't have a sick mind. He didn't enjoy the cross, but he enjoyed the relationship that would be attained by bearing the cross. And so the Hebrew writers were reminding the Christian, you too find joy in bearing the cross, not because you enjoy the pain, not because you enjoy the suffering, but you enjoy the relationship you find as you walk with Christ in and through suffering. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And he continues on again. Strive for peace with everyone. And I love this section because it reminds us of the obligation that we have as a church. Is oftentimes we like to seclude ourselves from the congregational aspect of our faith. That we think this is every man for himself. This isn't every man for himself. We exist to edify, uplift, and encourage one another in all things. And that here in Hebrews, it actually says, you're obligated to fight for that person's holiness as well. As you pick up your hands, you continue to endure, you continue to walk with Christ, make, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Have you considered that you are called to fight for one another's holiness? And for those of you who may not be walking in holiness, before you get offended when someone says you're missing the mark, you need to remember it is our responsibility as believers to as iron sharpens iron, Remind one another of what it is to strive for holiness. This is not a, an idea that the world likes to absorb today. The world that we live in, this younger generation, my generation, very much has this mindset that if anybody judges you, it's their problem. And then they, for those, they take this mindset and they bring it into the church and sanctification becomes unattainable because nobody's allowed to say anything to them because you're not called to judge without considering the rest of the verses. When you're called to judge, you're just called to do it very carefully. You're called to do it full of grace and full of mercy and to speak truth and righteousness. But brothers and sisters, we are obligated and called to not just fight for our own holiness, but to fight for one another's holiness as well. Is that we've been, we like to put blinders on and just focus on ourselves and ultimately that will lead us to unholy living, but still we let our other brothers and sisters fall off a cliff without ever saying anything to them. And is that love? Is it love when we know that our brother and sister is wading towards shipwreck and we're not willing to say anything? If scripture is true and we know that it is and the church is supposed to be known by its love for one another, then we have to be willing to fight for one another too. Are we willing to fight for one another. And again, I will put this reminder out there before any of you goes and mouths off to somebody else in the church, right? Is you're supposed to do it gracefully. They're supposed to know when you speak to them that the Lord loves them and that you love them. There's a lot of times we miss the mark because we're very, some of us like to tell everybody else how they're wrong. And by the time we're done telling somebody that they're doing something wrong, they don't feel loved at all. How many of you have ever been in that situation? I've been in that situation. I'm like, good Lord. Well, I never want to have a conversation with you again. But Jesus, while he speaks truth, it is riddled with grace. It doesn't mean that he doesn't remind them of the, the standard of holiness. But he reminds them to continue to endure because 
Love sits on the other side and it sits there now. Don't grow weary. Endure with Christ, even to the point of suffering, and fight for yours and one another's holiness. In chapter 13, as he finally brings this to a close, whoever this individual is, I love this one sentence that he peppers in here as I bring this to a close. If you look at verse 22, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Some of your, trans- some of your translations might say, I just wrote you this letter with short words. Like, I didn't write you very much. It's like, I, I have never received a letter this long. And for this person to say, I, I just wrote you a quick letter, is still funny to me. But in 13.1, he encourages them, let brotherly love continue Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And then in 20, 20 and 22, we see the summation or the wrap-up of the whole book. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as he would write, within this short letter, don't forget that Jesus is in fact alive today. And as Jesus is alive, he has provided you all the necessary tools to place your faith and trust in him and to be able to pursue holiness Brothers and sisters, don't get caught up in the religiousness of this whole thing. If we're going to be religious, let it be because we have great faith. But let let us not get that twisted and think we have great faith because we're religious. We don't come to church because we're obligated to do so. We come to church because of the great love that was expressed to us first. We will never be able to communicate truth and love if we are not full of love ourselves. Paul would say that's when we become a clanging symbol. And so with that, the book of Hebrews is about Jesus is better. I have five minutes. You know, as we do church this has been an interesting week so far. As we do church, admittedly, and this is as a pastor, we have meetings and we put things together to make sure that we have ministries to minister to people. That we try to put things together in a manner that is hospitable, it's clean, it's sharp, it's just... We try to make sure that service is done in a way that God is only glorified, but people still walk into church with expectations of the building itself and of the functionality of ministry itself. But if the book of Hebrews is true, we truly do have to walk away with the question, if Jesus is truly better, then is Jesus sufficient for me? 
As if none of this existed, if the lights weren't above our heads and we weren't able to kick the lights on, or this was just one giant hollow shell of a building, there wasn't children's ministry coffee or anything like it, is Jesus sufficient for the church to still raise their hands in worship? We can't overlook the glaring fact that through this book is he's trying to remind the Hebrew believer to get through all of the stuff that you're putting in front of Jesus. It's a distraction. It's about Jesus. And we as a church, we can apply that to today is what are all the things that we have in the way of seeing Christ in all that we do? Is Christ truly magnified in all the things that we do? In our understanding, when we come to church, is it actually about Him? Because I had some hard conversations this week because <clears throat> when it's not about Jesus and He isn't our satisfaction and He isn't our peace and He isn't all that we need, answers will inevitably be lacking. I had a young girl come into my office this week who recently gave her life to the Lord. And within 48 hours of giving her life to the Lord, she was given news by her doctors that the next step of her diabetes is that all of her organs were going to fail and that they can't give her a time, but her time is coming to a close. And she has a two-year-old. She comes in. She's just asking for prayer. And so I ask her, well, why are we asking for prayer today? Just to... See, how in the world can I comfort an individual? And to be honest, on, as on the side of the minister, how in the world do you encourage an individual who is a fairly new mother whose time is coming to an end? I can pray for a miracle, but I can't guarantee one. You see, I can provide an answer to try to bring her comfort in a moment. But if her faith, if our faith, isn't rested on the sufficiency of Christ. If our faith isn't full of knowing that God is still in control, then this is all a wash. Because we're all going to run into suffering. These Hebrews were dealing with suffering. This is why this letter was written. This is why many of these letters were written. It's because persecution was riding heavy. All of these letters, they still have the same continuous truth in them is that you need to rely on Christ for everything. If you heard today that your time was coming to an end, is the future hope sufficient to take you on another day? That's what this is about. The presentation is fine. It's great. We don't need the stage. We don't need the instruments. The Lord has provided us with people here in the church who can sing well enough to satisfy the ears for worship. Thank you guys for what you do. But it's not about the stuff. It's not about the building. If anything, like we see the tabernacle, we try to present something that is just a copy or a shadow of the things to come. But our faith isn't founded there. When we come to church for worship or we come to be entertained by a beautiful music composition or we come into worship 
whether it's good or not, because Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. I have seen, and I hope some of you have seen, I have seen some pretty poor musical performances surrounded by some of the greatest moments of worship because the brothers and sisters who came into the house of the Lord came to worship Jesus, not the men and women on the stage. We can be very much like whoever the book of Hebrews was written to, again, and put all these things on the same level of Jesus when they're subpar. Where is our faith at today? And I'm not bringing this to you because anybody in here has, is lacking faith. But when you're faced with questions like the ones that we were faced with this week, it puts even your leaders on their heels to say, Am I, is my faith really rooted in Christ? Do I believe what I'm trying to tell this young woman today? If I was given the same news, would I have the faith to go to church and ask for prayer. There are many, we'll call them believers, there are many Christians who when they're faced with the end of days, the end of their time here on this earth, church is the last place in the world they want to be. It's not Jesus that they run to because Jesus was never who they ran to. Consider today, really consider who Jesus is and the fact that he is sufficient. If you're trying to rectify your home by your own strength, your strength is insufficient. If you're trying to rectify your ability to be a parent by your own strength, your strength is insufficient. Your marriage, the list goes on and on and on. It can apply to your workplace, it can apply to whatever. If you're coming to church because you want Jesus to be Mr. Fix-It for all of those things, that's not sufficient either. Your relationship needs to be found in him because he can bring you peace that will overflow you and bless those around you. So again, the message tonight is Jesus is better. He provides what nothing else has ever been able to provide. He's the encouragement that we seek in every other place. He's the only one who's ever been able to provide salvation. Amen? Sorry they got super heavy at the end, but we should ask that question. Every leader, every church leader should ask that question. Every pastor, every believer should ask that question. Is my faith put in Jesus or is it put in something else? Because just being honest with you guys, when, you, when you're running through ministry, Ministry can be like any other job. I can do ministry well, but it doesn't mean that I'm relying on Christ in it. We need to ask and make sure that what we're doing is by Christ's direction and by Christ alone. So let's stand together as we bring this to a close and pray. Now listen, Sharon, did you guys have a closing song? Uh, I do. You do? Okay, yeah. Let's close in prayer and Alyssa will lead us out in worship. So, Father, we come before you tonight. God, thankful for this book and thankful for ministry, Lord. Lord, as I consider Scripture, even to the topic of what we're talking about, Lord, remember Jacob. 
Lord, that you shrunk a part of his hip so that every time he hobbled, he'd remember that you were in control. And Lord, while I don't wish that you would shrink any part of my hip, and I'd imagine nobody in here would either, God, we're thankful for the reminders through your word, and we're thankful for the reminders in in ministry. We're thankful for the reminders in our relationship that, God, you were in control. Lord, I'm thankful for the ability to see your faithfulness in the little things. I'm thankful for our ability to see your faithfulness in a book like Hebrews. That, Lord, you sustained all these men and women on faith. They got on this hope of the things to come. They endured through great suffering that they, if their hands fell, Lord, you were faithful and sufficient to not let their hands fall for very long, but they picked them back up and put them back on the plow. And God, I ask tonight that if there's any of us here whose hands have fallen because we're tired, God, I pray that you would fill us up so that, Lord, we would have the energy to put our hands back to the plow and to keep pursuing you. Lord, not just to fight for the holiness of our home, but to fight for the holiness of our brothers and sisters. That, God, we wouldn't fight for religious repetition. We wouldn't fight for the show. That we wouldn't fight for an act, but, Lord, we would truly fight for holiness. Because, Lord, you are worth it. So, God, we pray that you would fill us up this evening, encourage us, and provide safe travels home so that, Lord, if you would allow it, unless you return first, we would worship together again this Sunday. And we ask this in your Son's precious and holy name. And all the saints agreed and said, Amen. So, I don't have the uh, chords to the song, so I can't play songs I don't have chords to. Uh, but this song was just really on my heart uh, during the message. So, if we can just sing it, It's God I Look to You. Um, if you can get it up on the screens, if not, it's okay. Uh, but let's just go ahead and sing. You can stand or sit, um, whatever um, you're called to do. Let's just go ahead and sing. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do. And I will love you, Lord, my strength. Yes, I will love you, Lord, my shield. Yes, I will love you, Lord, my rock. Forever, all my days, I will love you, God. 
Yes, I will love you, Lord, my strength. Oh, I will love you, Lord, my shield. Oh, I will love you, Lord, my rock. Forever, all my days, I will love you, God. Hallelujah, our God reigns. Yes, hallelujah, our God reigns. Oh, hallelujah, our God reigns. Forever all my days, hallelujah. Let's sing that one more time. Hallelujah. Our God reigns. Hallelujah, our God reigns. Oh, hallelujah, our God, you reign forever all my days. Hallelujah. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do. Amen. Go in peace tonight. Have a wonderful rest of your night.